Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. Tim Egan is not your average police member. The retired AFP superintendent has served 34 years in three continents. Before joining the Northern Territory Police, Tim was a mine worker, timber millhand, builder's labourer and bank clerk. And his role in the job proved just as varied. He's worked in some of Australia's most remote police stations. As an Alice Springs prosecutor and an inspector in Darwin during Cyclone Tracy, before joining the Customs Department Narcotics Bureau and working with Scotland Yard and Joint Task Force Investigations with Victoria Police. Hi Tim and a big warm welcome to The Crime Couch. Thanks Rochelle. How are you today? I'm all right. You tried your hand at many other jobs, Tim, before joining the Northern Territory Police. What drew you to the police force? Well, I first went to Darwin in 1957. I was working for the commercial bank and the single staff lived at the back of the bank, which was on the corner of Smith Street and Nucky Street. And uh, that was right next to the police station. And in those days, the single policeman lived upstairs at the top of the police station. Living next door, we got to know them socially and uh, it appeared to me that this wasn't a bad sort of a job at all. So I thought I'd apply and I went down to check up and you had to be 21. So I headed off to West Australia and uh, all those jobs that you mentioned before, working at the Brickies Labourer and working at the Timber Mill, which was the most dangerous job I think anybody in the world could have had in those days. And a um, bit of doing mine work on Ilmenite mining, which is mining of beach sands on the southwest coast of West Australia. So in due course, I joined the Commonwealth Bank while working in Busselton. And from there, I got a transfer to Hobart. And one day I got a letter from my mum and she had put a cutting in, which was an advertisement that had been in the Melbourne Sun for people to join the Northern Territory Police. She had written in her letter, you were interested in joining this crowd at one stage, are you still? I banged an application off the very next day and around about two weeks later I got a letter signed AC Mofflin and it was an application form for me to fill out. I duly filled it out. I had an, uh, an interview in Melbourne in August by Chief Inspector Sid Bowie of the Northern Territory Police. At the conclusion of the interview, he said, I don't know about you, he said, you seem to be a bit restless with all these jobs you've had. But he said, you're big enough and you're ugly enough. So he said, you might be right. We might probably take you. <laughs> so I was lucky enough to get in and I joined on the 29th of January 1962, which was, of course, in the middle of the wet season. Having been to Darwin before, I knew a bit about the wet season. There were eight of us on the training course and uh, lasted only six weeks, but we got to know each other extremely well. We were living in single men's quarters, which was a place called Mariner House, which these days or subsequently was occupied by the Travelodge Hotel that was built there. In those days, it was a bit rough and ready and there were probably about 40 of us lived in there. 
and we were on shift work, so people were coming and going. And it was hard to get asleep in the daytime if you were on the night shift, but nevertheless, uh, it was all great fun. So you graduated, Tim, as a ducks in your squad. How would you describe yourself as a young police member? I was enthusiastic and I absorbed everything around me because it was exactly what I had been looking forward to for about three years since I'd made up my mind to apply but was too young. And I was so lucky. If I look back now on some of the colleagues that I had, we still had around about 14 or 15 senior men in the job who had been in the police service since before the war. Now, that meant that they were significantly older than fellows like me, who was 22. We didn't see much of them socially, but it was they were just so... Some of them were awesome figures, like Greg Ryle, who was the great hero of the incident with Mrs Petroff in 1954. He put the Northern Territory Police on the front page of every newspaper in the free world when he carried out that rescue. Just incredible stuff. And these were our colleagues. They were our bosses. But in due course, they were to become our mentors and in many cases, they were to become our mates. You were in general duties in Alice Springs during the early 1960s. What were the challenges then? Well, I'll be straightforward and I've got to tell you that the population of Alice Springs at the time was around about 7,000. There were probably 22 or 24 policemen, uh, no police women. And the nine years that I served in Alice Springs, you've got to regard in three different social periods. Now, the first period, 1962 to September 1964, Aboriginal consumption of alcohol was prohibited. It was a complex way it was carried out, but that, by and large, was the statement. If you were a full-blood Aboriginal person, you weren't allowed to drink. And, of course, they did. And unfortunately for them, it was a criminal offence. It was called war drink liquor. And to the people that supplied them, it was a little bit more serious because for a first offence, you got three months hard labour, and that's for giving somebody a glass of beer on a hot day. And for a second offence, you got six months hard labour. Did you have any Indigenous police members working with you? We had two Aboriginal trackers in Alice Springs. Every police station in the Territory at that time, and there were 21 of them, everyone had at least one tracker working there. Uh, In Darwin, there'd been two, Catherine two, Tennant Creek two, and in Alice Springs, there were two, Larry and Billy. They were terribly skilled at what they were did, just absolutely incredible the way they were. They were, a colleague of mine once put it, and ever so cleverly, he said, they were our forensic division, the trackers. So then the next, the next period came after the laws were changed in September 1964. There was a steady erosion then of some of the Aboriginal steadfastness of adhering to their own groups. They got stuck into the grog, for want of a better word, and they, were, they still didn't have much money. I don't think that the social security system, such as uh, the Dole or things like that, had been extended broadly, and it wasn't a very generous system anyway, I can tell you. But then in in, uh, May 1967, the Commonwealth referendum was held to adjust the constitution in relation to three things. 
the principal outcome of that was, the main one was the fact that the Commonwealth Government now had power to make laws in relation to Aboriginal people. Everybody else says about, oh, it was the right to vote. Well, that was rubbish, but uh, I'm telling you now. The Commonwealth have got power to make laws, and the Commonwealth having the power to make laws meant money. Soon after the Department of Aboriginal Affairs was established, in the very first place it was a ministry under a fellow named Ralph Hunt, and it was the Department of Arts, Tourism and Aboriginal Affairs. It was a collective thing. Then Dr Herbert Coombs, Nugget Coombs, who was the chairman of the Reserve Bank, uh, he took over as the, the director, not the public service director, that was a guy named Barry Dexter, and they were able to start pouring money into various projects around the country, and so many of them were so deserved because the squalid conditions that most of the Aboriginal people lived in were a disgrace. But previously, in the, before I had joined the job, in the late 50s, they'd started, they'd established settlements. The churches had had missions around the Northern Territory for many years. Groot Island and uh, uh, Arnhem Land, all over the place, the churches, and with goodwill. The Hermansburg uh, Mission, which was from the Lutheran Church, was an incredibly productive area and uh, very well run, and uh, the people still these days talk of it with awe, just what a terrific place it was. But um, the, all of a sudden the Commonwealth Government money started to go and they bought a few cattle stations for, for which was then transferred into Aboriginal ownership, but not quite like freehold ownership, unfortunately, and that's still a problem these days where many of the land rights uh, that have been granted the Aboriginal people don't have all that detailed control over them after all this time. Tim, tell me about your first shift boss, Gentleman Jack Coglan. <laughs> a delightful man, Jack Coglan, and he, he taught me a lesson. Now, we had a, I told you that our training class had only lasted for six weeks. And even though I was ducks of the class, there were still a few things that I didn't know. One night, Jack and I were on patrol in Parap, suburb of Darwin, and we got a call over the radio. We were in a sedan car. We got a call over the radio to say that there was a drunk fellow staggering around Drysdale Street. So we drove along, and there was the drunk. He's obviously drunk, but it was dark, but it was uh, apparent we knew what we were doing. And Jack said, I'll grab him, Tim, and throw him in. And I was just about to get out of the car and Jack said, hold on. He said, I can't tell you to do that. He said, now, the legislation gives you the power, if you have reasonable cause to suspect that an offence is being committed, he said, you have got the authority to arrest him. He said, but you have got to have the reasonable cause. I can't tell you to have reasonable cause. Round about 20 years later, I was in the Supreme Court in Melbourne and the fellow who later on became uh, Chief Justice of Victoria, he was defending the particular bloke that was on trial. And he said, uh, he said to me, if my client had walked away, would you have ordered Mr. Walshaw to arrest him? And I, my mind flashed back to Jack Coughlin in the, in the car at Parap. 
And I said, no, I wouldn't have. And he said, why not? And I said, because I don't have the power. He's got to have the reasonable cause to suspect that the offence that I quoted Jack verbatim back to the man who was to become Chief Justice. And he then said, I'd like to have a debate with you one day, but not here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what a great story. Tim, how do you describe remote policing, which indeed it was? Phases. However far back you want to turn the pages in the history book. Now, we went, my wife and I went to Anthony's Lagoon in 1965, and I would say that we were at the end of phase one and well into phase two. Now, the distinction was I'll tell you, I came up with a definition. If you're on a station like that and you've got a problem, by the time your doubtful communications allow you to get out a message seeking help and the people that are going to respond have got such a vast distance to travel over such crappy roads in such doubtful transport that they've got at their disposal, you might as well solve the problem yourself. Don't think you're going to rely on outside help. Inevitably, of course, there'll be major cases where you're going to have to get outside help. But what used to be known in Australia is the tyranny of distance, as far as I'm concerned. We had the tyranny of distance, the tyranny of condition of roads, and the tyranny of crappy communications. But ours were so much better than my predecessors had been. At Anthony's Lagoon, the radio had actually been installed by the Reverend John Flynn and Alfred Traeger, Flynn of the Inland. They had put up the radio there in 1932, the first police radio in the Northern Territory was installed at Borroloola in 1931 and the chief superintendent at the time was so pleased with the results he got them to put in another one at Anthony's Lagoon the next year. Now all the stations up and down the Stewart Highway, like Mataranka and, and uh, places like that, they'd had telephones so they, were, they had communications all the time but all of a sudden the bush stations had got radios. Now, that would have made a major difference. Oh, it was all about. And I was even able, I had a more modern one uh, than, of course, the people had in 1932. I had some wonderful predecessors at Anthony's Lagoon, fellas like Clive Graham, Greg Ryle, Ron Hughes, Bill Littlejohn. These were were fabulous names. They'd had all, all served at Anthony's Lagoon. They would have had the benefit of the radios as we did because it was put in in 1932. But we, we got a storm, an unseasonal storm in August 1966 and it blew the masts down that Traeger and John Flynn had installed in 1932. That was how ferocious the storm was. And so all of a sudden, we were out of action. I had a mobile vehicle, a mobile radio in the motor vehicle, but it was so old and so, out, uh, so useless because you had to erect a mast and tie the mast to a tree. And the only thing I had to tie the mast to the tree was my trousers belt. So if I did that, my pants would fall down. <laughs> and but, so it was effectively useless. But very soon afterwards, there was a genius who worked for the Department of Civil Aviation, which in those days was the best government department in the Commonwealth of Australia, a bloke there named Lyle Kempster. And Lyle came up with a, with a mechanism and he created this device himself and I was able to erect it in my backyard 
and it hooked, and he gave me a new transistor, and it hooked this up. I could speak to anywhere, and every month we had to get on on and make a call to the Department of Civil Aviation to make sure that we were transmitting. So I would get on every about every fourth Saturday afternoon when I'd finished listening to the football from Victoria. I'd get on, I'd say, Anthony's Lagoon, 8th X-ray echo calling DCA, 8th X-ray echo calling DCA, can you come in please? And I might get a response from Broome or I might get a response from Adelaide or I might get a response from Townsville. Didn't matter where because the Department of Civil Aviation was so crucial to us in any consequent search and rescue operations. What were the crimes you were mainly investigating in these stations? Imagining there'd be livestock theft, there'd be you chasing fugitives, that sort of thing. Yes, that's uh, that last one was spot on. The chasing the fugitives. We had a, we had a case. I had to go to Borroloola from Anthony's Lagoon. I went up there on the Thursday before Decimal Currency Day, so that makes it about February the ninth, nineteen sixty-six. I flew up to Borroloola via Mount Isa because after the drinking rights had changed, Borroloola didn't have a policeman of these days, and uh, after the drinking rights had changed, a lot of people were in a lot of a bad way by the end of the wet season. All the money was gone, the grog was taken over completely. People had been swigging metho as hard as they could go. So I went up there and I had to spend a fortnight there because we got completely rained in. I'd flown in and I had to leave, I had to come out by horse. So I rode a horse down from Borroloola to MacArthur River, which had a better airstrip than Borroloola, and uh, that was a two-day ride. And uh, I then was at MacArthur River, and I was notified that there were two young fellas that were out on the tablelands, and they were lost. So Roger Canellan, the late, great Roger Canellan, was my pilot when I caught the plane back next day to get back to Anthony's Lagoon, and we went up and down what was what passed for a road and sure enough here were these tellers two fellas and they were standing by a blue zephyr ford zephyr sedan so we just roger was like biggles and he sort of flew over and waggled his wings in his the fellas waved up yeah what we were signaling was to stay where you are so roger dropped me off i jumped in the police vehicle and i got the manager of the cattle station to come with me and the police tracker dashwood because uh, I didn't know quite what we were going to have to look at here. We didn't have any information about them. And it turned out that they had been a party of four. These two young fellas, had, they'd run away from home. That was 16. Mm. They'd run away from home in Sydney and they'd got up as far as Cloncurry and they'd fell into what my mother would have called bad company. <laughs> there were a couple of older fellas there, Andrew Peter Coops and Norman Bruce Robinson. And uh, these two young fellas from Sydney fell in with these blokes and anyway, Coops and Robinson, they pinched a car, they pinched this blue zephyr. And off they headed out of Queensland, up into the Northern Territory, and they had turned right off the, uh, off the Barclay Highway at what was known in those days as the Beef Road. It's now called the Cape Crawford Highway, I think. And uh, they'd got as far as they could, and they'd got hopelessly, totally bogged. On, uh, they'd just run out of, uh, they'd run out of gravel road. So anyway, Coops and Robinson had set off to walk further ahead of these two young fellas. They'd stayed with the vehicle, which was what you're always told to do in the event you break down. So the manager of the cattle station, they seemed like they were straightforward. They were quite desperate. They hadn't had anything to eat for a couple of days, plenty to drink. 
and uh, so he he decided he'd put them up at the cattle station. And then I got onto my colleague John Wilson, who was at Avon Downs Police Station at the time. We were going to have to do something about these other fellas that had originally stolen the car. So John Wilson came up to my place. He was a couple of hundred miles away. He came up and we planned, we'll set off the next day. So we charged off. And of course, we had the same trouble getting through this, uh, through this boggy country as these people, although we had four-wheel drive vehicles. So we got up, the first place we came to was Balberini Station, which was owned by one of Australia's greatest all-time sportsmen, a bloke named Laurie Morgan. And if you ever look Laurie up, he was a champion at everything, including winning two gold medals at the Rome Olympics for equestrian events with Bill Roycroft, who gets mentioned a lot, but Laurie was just as heroic as Bill was. But Laurie was the owner of Balberini Station, but he was away at the time and his son Warwick was there. And what had happened, Coops and Robinson had walked in there and, oh, he said, what, where are you fellas come from? And they said, oh, we broke down, we've done this, we've done that. So Warwick's put them up and he's fed them and he's looked after them and they have got the wind up a bit because they know at some stage there's going to be somebody chasing after them. So that very morning, Warwick has woken up. They have torn all the spark plugs out of his other Land Rover They've pinched his main Land Rover and they've shot his dog. And uh, that was a, a, a pretty pleasant way of showing your gratitude for the hospitality you've been shown. So Warwick actually hopped in the vehicle with John Wilson and we set off across the road, uh, which then goes through OT Downs, which is going to come out at the other end at just near Daly Waters, where there was a policeman named Basil Smith and... Johnny Wilson was able to get his radio working and um, by the time Coops and Robinson had got to the other end of the road, they'd got to the big beat, uh, the Stewart Highway, we had three policemen waiting for them there. Peter Hammond had come down from Larimar, Alan Price had come from Mataranka and Basil Smith was there at Daly Waters. So by the time we got across there to, uh, to meet them, they already had Coops and Robinson in custody. So uh, it was. I had five punctures in the way of getting across there. So, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was a bit of a giggle, but nevertheless, uh, it, uh, it, it there was no time to get bored. <laughs> Tim, explain to me briefly, because we don't have much time left to this, this first interview, If you, why did you become a prosecutor? It sounds like you had such an extraordinary time working in the top end. What uh, drew you to becoming a, a prosecutor? Well, the fact that it involved a promotion and was a vacancy and I enjoyed courtroom work um, in Alice Springs at the time, we had a magistrate named Godfrey Foy Hall, who was nicknamed was Scrubby, and uh, he was a, he was unique in my lifetime and my law enforcement career, and uh, but he he uh, he was very down to earth, and he in fact was a qualified rugby league referee and he was a qualified baseball umpire and he took part in things that lots of magistrates wouldn't in a country town which is all Alice Springs was really but we also had a bloke who I think was as good as any lawyer in the whole of Australia a bloke named Ian McClellan Barker who became QC 
uh, and Ian Barker ultimately went to uh, opera to practice in Sydney some years later, um, and he was the absolute classic of what a lawyer, the greatest gift a lawyer has got to be, he's got to be able to think on his feet because you don't know what the answer to the... A lot of the time, you don't know what the answer to the question is going to be and you've got to be able to cope with the fact that it might have a bit of topspin on it. <laughs> and and Barker was absolutely brilliant at that. And uh, I, I just, as I say, I enjoyed the court work and I prosecuted all the, all the committal hearings that we had for three years... Uh, murders, some rapes and uh, all the serious crime. We had some gold stealing from Tennant Creek we had to prosecute. And, um, yeah, all in all, um, a most enjoyable three-year period. Did it make you, uh, working as a prosecutor, do you think it enhanced your skills as a police member? Not hard for me to make a judgment about myself. I, of course, always thought I was pretty bloody good anyway. <laughs> but uh, I uh, there was a there was a bit of the great leveller about it because when you came up with a, against a fellow like Barker, I would say that in the three years I was prosecuting, because police put up good cases, they never put up rubbish cases, they and and they didn't put up time wasting cases. Uh, and you know it was all fairly straightforward. But Barker, Barker was able to transform a seemingly innocent situation into something complex and twisty and turny, and only he had the key to get out of the labyrinth. And I had to try and cope with that. So as I say, he put me in my place plenty of time so that I hope that I kept my feet on the ground anyway, regardless of how good I thought I was. You were working in um, as an inspector in Darwin around the time of 1974 when Cyclone Tracy hit. What are your memories of that time? Um, do you think there are some major lessons learnt from an emergency service point of view? Well, I have, I've gone slightly embarrassed here because around about seven months before Cyclone Tracy struck... I went to the Civil Defence College at Macedon in Victoria to work on what was called disaster planning. Mm. Now, I got back to Darwin after that and I was all fired up. This was absolutely because it, it was just a matter of time. And in fact, the worst thing to happen for Cyclone Tracy was the fact that two weeks before Cyclone Tracy, we had Cyclone Selma. And Cyclone Selma wobbled about and diddle diddle this, or did a bit of that, and turned to the left and turned north, turned south, and blew away. Except left a bit of heavy rain. So it was just under the cyclone. We have them every couple of years. Cyclone Tracy. Oh, here comes this Cyclone Tracy. Well, we'll be able to do that standing on our heads now. I wasn't there at the time. But going back to the disaster planning thing. Now, I, was re I really became an enthusiast because I could see how practical all these plans were that the civil defence people got us. We were going to prepare these plans. I got back, I called for the files, and it turned out that it had become an argument between the Commissioner of Police of the day and the bloke that was in charge of the civil defence in Darwin, which was a very small operation. I think they had a dinghy and a, led, a, a ladder and about 100 feet of rope, and that was all they had at their disposal. 
but they, these, the, these two senior people were arguing about who was going to be in charge in the event that an emergency had to be declared and the file had been going backwards and forwards and nothing had been done. And I couldn't see my way clear to being able to do anything other than start to set in place a structure to cope with the effects of the cyclone. You can do nothing about the cyclone, but you've got to be able to cope with the effects of the cyclone. And I then went on leave and I was sitting in a warm pub in Sussex when Darwin was being absolutely hammered by Cyclone Tracy. I feel, in a way, some uh, subliminal guilt about that, but I got over that because I got back to Darwin and it was good because I didn't have any baggage from the actual effects of the cyclone. I just was able to get on and start doing some work by way of coping with the effects. But as far as uh, preparedness is concerned, uh, they were found wanting what you what you absolutely have to do is to have clearly designated shelters that have been worked out well in advance for particular suburban areas. You've got to have these shelters that are of a sound buildings and then you've got to make sure that the people know where the shelters are and the very fact that they're available. Yeah. And then, of course, in your, in your time, your last 36 hours or something like that, that's when you've got to start going on to red alert and getting the people out of their houses, into the shelters and so on. And, and of course, you get worries about looters and stuff like that because not everyone's going to take a note, heed of your advice to get out of the play and get into a shelter. Well, Tim, thank you very much for part one today. Uh, thanks very much for sitting with me on the crime couch. We definitely want to hear in part two about you setting up an AFP office in Scotland Yard. I want to hear about you working with former Vicpol detective Neil Furston, Furzo, in a couple of those major task force investigations, including Operation Airs. But in the meantime, thank you very much for sitting with me on the crime couch. Look forward to part two. Good on you. Thanks very much, Rochelle, and it's lovely to be able to recall some of the highly exciting and colourful things that I've been involved in. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Catch.